Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Deputy Editor at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each month, we're delving a little deeper into some of the conversations being had in our community, learning more about exciting innovations and probing some of the issues we're facing. This month, we're talking to Fatima Iftikhar and Henna Shah about hashtag Charity So White, the social media-led campaign to address structural racism and lack of representation in the voluntary sector. And Rebecca sat down with former Beating Bowel Cancer Chief Executive Mark Flanagan to ask, is it ever acceptable for a charity chief executive to receive a bonus? But first, like many of our listeners, I spent last weekend laid out on the sofa mainlining crisps. But not Rebecca, who set out on an extraordinary bipedal mission. So tell us all about it. (laughs) (laughs) Haymarket's charity, uh, third sector publisher Haymarket's charity of the year this year is a fantastic little organisation called Skylarks based in Richmond. Uh, They work with children with learning difficulties and disabilities and um, third sector's editor Andy Hillier, if anybody knows him will know he is a very, very keen cyclist. He loves Um, to bike. He loves He loves to bike. And he was part of the organising team for a London to Amsterdam bike ride, sponsored bike ride for the charity. And we were sat in the meeting and he was explaining this and saying, would anybody like to do this? And I heard this voice say, yeah, I might give that a go. And, and it turned out that voice was mine. Um, <laughs> and, and just to be clear, like Rebecca was just like not a cycler. You were not a cycler no, before you uh, did this So all, in April, I bought the first bike I've owned in 15 years wow. for specifically to do this challenge. And uh, yeah, no, it was. Uh, so yeah, it's 150 miles in total over two days. I'm glad I did it. What was the part where you were just like, I'm giving up. I'm going home. This is horrible. Where were you? I think, in England or Amsterdam? Uh, in the Netherlands, the first first hour of the second day actually was the hardest because mm. it was just convincing my legs that oh no we're going to do this again we're going to yeah. we did it we did 100 miles yesterday um and so we're going to do another 50 miles to Amsterdam and my legs were just like no 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 this isn't a good idea and yeah. that that was the moment where I thought and it, that's the bit you've been bribing yourself with mm. like we'll get to the Netherlands and it'll be flat and it'll all be fine it'll be windmills and tulips yeah. all the way flat to Amsterdam yeah, wasn't it? it was sand dunes uh, <laughs> very glad I did it and uh, at the moment uh, my thing my, my personal total stands at about £950 for the charity um, very and, admirable uh, I think we're at about £35,000 as a company I figured I would put my money where my mouth was or or maybe having having listened having worked with fundraisers for so long I thought ah, I should I should get a better understanding of fundraising. Do you feel on the like ground. you have a better understanding of it now? I kind of I kind of feel like I've put a lot of things into practice that I've been told at fundraising conferences. Or I've, I've heard at fundraising conferences and kind of repeated in articles. So things like thanking your donors. You know, I put it, once we got to Amsterdam, I put out a thing on Facebook being like, "Thank you so much to everybody who's sponsored me," and it was a genuine, heartfelt thing. Like it really made a difference. Thank you so much. And I got three or four more donations within half an hour because people were like oh yes I want to get in on that I want yeah. I, I forgot about that and I, I want to be, get in on that so so yeah and a lot of the kind of the language about you make a difference and you matter so uh, yeah thank you to uh, yeah Simon Scriver probably and, and pretty much every other fundraiser who's seminar I've sat in uh, and reported on over the years. Yeah, there you yeah. go. So you've made a made a marketable difference. Yeah. And well, if people did want to donate to that, I'm just going to, it's still open. It's justgiving.com slash fundraising slash Rebecca dash Cooney 2. Yeah, if you were wanting to give some more money and Feeling help me. Feeling generous. Yes, it's a fantastic cause and you might help me raise more than Andy Hillier and that would make me happy. So There you go. There's a call to arms if ever <laughs> I heard one. Right, on with the show. Yes. 
So when training guidance published by Citizens Advice entitled Working with Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic Communities was unearthed last month, it kicked off a viral social media conversation about the lack of diversity in the charity sector. As people discussed how this guidance, which was described as both reductive and horribly racist, was greenlighted, people of colour working in the charity sector began coming forward with their own experiences of discrimination, united under the hashtag CharitySoWhite. We're joined today by Fatima Iftikhar and Hena Shah, who are organisers of the Charity So White campaign and POC Impact, a community for people of colour in the social impact sector, to talk about why it's so important that the sector wakes up to institutional racism. Did you expect the hashtag Charity So White to generate the response that it did? Yes, I think so. The reason that we kind of launched this campaign was around moving this conversation about one training slide at one organisation, the Citizens Advice Training, to a conversation about institutional racism in the sector and the fact that actually this could have been many training slides at many other organisations because the sector has a huge problem. Um, And we wanted to give a platform to people of colour working in the sector to share their experiences. Yeah, I think while the Citizens Advice training was shocking to a lot of people actually a lot of people of colour who work within the sector or in social impact more broadly found that actually their personal experiences at work and in their campaigning lives and their social impact lives really resonated with the message and the feelings that were created and we wanted to create the space for them to share their stories. And what would you say is the biggest challenge around structural racism in the sector? The one challenge. Just the one challenge. We talk about this a lot and I think we came to a sort of agreement where we thought it's a lot about intention. So I think we all go into our work with sort of excellent intentions. We want to change the world. We want to solve this problem or that problem. We want to do good. And actually there's almost a sense that if you're talking to organisations who are trying to do something good, then it seems nitpicky to bring them up on questions of inclusion, diversity and representation. I don't know if you agree, Fatima? Yeah, I think um, quite a few people like tweeted about this part of campaign that it's it's quite easy to hide behind having good yeah. good intentions and trying and that having a good intention does not necessarily translate to having good impact. Mm. Um, and I think there's... Yeah, and I think that is something that's quite specific to the charity sector and social impact sector specifically in comparison to maybe some other kind of sectors. And I think one of the other things is like also hiding behind like a lack of resources Mm -hmm. and being able to say that, you know, we'd love to make a change, but we just don't have the resources. And I think that kind of thinking comes when your service users and the communities you're working for aren't central to yeah, what and you're aren't trying being to do. reflected. Yeah. yeah, and I do think that thing about intention has come up again and again and again in the charity sector recently. You know, we've had it with Oxfam and yeah. safeguarding. Mm. We've had it with stuff around gender um, discrimination, gender treatments as well. Like it just feels like again and again this thing of but we're the good guys yeah. is coming up and is actually getting in the way of charities being the good guys. There's yeah, a very exactly. interesting tension which I noticed as well, particularly around racism and intention, where people say. Oh no, but I, you know, I'm a good, I'm a good person, and you know what? I would never shout racist abuse at a person <laughs> in the street. So obviously, yeah. I'm not a racist, and, I, and it's that's I think, the only thing that racism that, looks yeah, like. Yeah, very nice, <laughs> really, isn't really it? Really you know, reductive yeah. view, especially among white people, about what racism is, and there's a real reluctance. What I've noticed to have this nuance around saying, "All right, so I'm not individually a racist, but I can still be benefiting from structural." institutional mm-hmm. racism and it seems like we still need to be getting onto that level yeah. you know in the charity sector and frankly like beyond the charity mm. sector it's something that we should all be engaging with so so why is it so important that organizations are making the effort to ask themselves these questions we touched briefly on, on lack of resource and about you know intention yeah so i think like this idea 
For us, this campaign is is about also thinking more broadly about how power is structured in the sector and how we can shift power structures to a place where it puts users first and it puts users' needs first. And it isn't about, you know, chasing funding or donor-centric approaches to work. And it is thinking more broadly about social issues and, and how we tackle those and how we come together as a sector to do that. And I think it was quite like telling in almost like the lack of response mm. from leadership in the sector of the fact that there's quite a way to go on this and I think it kind of picks up and on your point around how people like feel or react when they think that they're being accused of, of racism and like how do we how do we get to a point where leadership realizes that being called out about institutional racism in your organization isn't necessarily you know you're not solely responsible for that occurring yeah. you acknowledging that there's institutional racism where you work is actually just an acknowledgement that you have responsibility in changing that and doing something about it mm. and working with others to bring about that change yeah and i think you can see that in the citizens advice response perfectly in that I remember there was sort of like a stock response that was posted on Twitter and then they took it down and they saw the problem initially as one of media and social media engagement. Mm. And then actually the later response was one about process. How come this wasn't this was signed off and how did this continue? And like we know the conversations about the structural nature of power within the organisation and why this was allowed to happen have been happening. But actually in the published response, Citizens Advice only looked at the like procedural ways in which this was allowed to occur. And actually that's what bit of my website is unregulated. (laughs) That's gonna tackle the issue. And I thought that was a really good point that was made in the Charity White response to Mm. to the official Citizens Advice kind of report that they had was it's not talked about the impact this might have been having on beneficiaries all the time that people have been trained using this guidance that exists. And I thought that was such an interesting point. Absolutely. And I think that's the thing is that we need to think more broadly about what we as a sector are actually for. Are we for gap stopping where people need it? So therefore we can say, oh, we don't have the resources to make corporate change and to include people from different backgrounds in our leadership teams and to do that hard work because we need those resources at the front line, which is something I completely appreciate. But actually, if you want to achieve systemic change, which is what I think we all want. A lot of organisations say they want. Mm -hmm. A lot of people say they want. Actually, you need to do this corporate work because otherwise you're not putting your service users at the centre of what you're trying to do because actually these structural problems have huge impacts on like the kind of resources that you choose to allocate and the kind of projects you choose to run. Yeah, Mm -hmm. And like, uh, I hate to go kind of (laughs) keep going back to the systems advice Mm. example, but we know how hard austerity has hit communities Mm. of colour over the last kind of decade. And then you think about what will it mean for the increase of people who will be needing to access citizens' advice services? Right. And what will they be being met with? If you kind of start to connect some of those dots, you understand you understand this wider picture of what's happening and how how underserved communities of colour are because of this. And you talked a little bit about the kind of the the response or lack of of, of leaders, and particularly kind of white leaders on Twitter. And there's been a lot of controversy in the last kind of few months about who is getting equality and diversity inclusion roles you know there have been a couple of appointments where people have said actually I'm not sure that's the person for this role and I think there's an interesting tension there that obviously it's not for people of colour to kind of explain to white people what racism is and why they're wrong and how it needs to change and how it needs to be done but how can kind of white colleagues within the sector engage productively with and support the charity so white movement we had discussion about this and obviously it's quite a difficult question because what you don't want to do is you don't want to tokenize it in any Mm, way right and and also the thing comes back to intentions there are lots of people who are very 
well-meaning in the sector who go in and they're like, yes, diversity is good, but what they don't necessarily think the citizens' advice thing um, sort of sums up perfectly is diversity and inclusion isn't the same as representation. Just because you have a person of colour in the room doesn't necessarily mean that their voices are being platformed or that they're being heard. And actually, I think... Well, they have decision-making yeah, power. that they have power. Or also equally that they represent all people yeah. of colour as well. Absolutely. Yes. No, absolutely. And I think it's about, if you agree with Fatima, but about white colleagues and people generally thinking about how they choose to speak about their colleagues with people of colour, how they choose to speak about these issues and actually using their power where they're able to by platforming other people, seeing where those issues happen, like speaking to their colleagues and actually fostering an open and honest culture, which I think is something we should have anyway, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like a lot of allyship is about what you do and say when people of colour aren't in the room because so yeah. often people of colour aren't. Like um, There was some research from inclusive boards in 2018 um, that showed 80% of charities have no ethnic minority representation kind of in their leadership teams. So ultimately, we need white allies to take serious action on this because they're the ones who are kind of in power and who have uh, in like decision making positions and like that could mean a lot of things it could be mean reflecting on you know how do you use your power how do you use your space how can you kind of give up spaces and create meaningful spaces for people of color to input on decision making I think there's lots of things there, and I think that's definitely one of the things so we're looking to get a lot of input from people of color across the sector about what's next with the campaign and that this is definitely one aspect that we want input on to understand what people think that white colleagues in the sector can and should be doing. There are some amazing resources out there as well. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it sounds like, like a 101 textbook thing, but, you know, there are so many amazing books and so many amazing essays which have been written in this area. You don't have to look far mm-hmm. to find them, to start thinking. I know it's the, the one that everybody talks about is obviously why I'm no longer talking to white people about race by Rennie Edgar Lodge, but it costs you so little in your own time to go and actually, like, diversify the things that you're reading a little bit and, you know, to actually look at different viewpoints and that sort of thing and start, doing that in a way that means that you are challenging the views that you have and that you've been you kind of you know you, you grow up having them and that sort of thing which is mm-hmm. something that is yeah it's a very easy thing to do so you've spoken a lot about organizational culture there something that I saw which really interested me on your twitter account was mm-hmm. there was a, a diagram talking about the kind of the trajectory that a lot of people of color feel like they take through the charity mm-hmm. etc and off the top of my head I just remember that you know it's, it's things like like a person of color enters an organization and is welcomed and is celebrated and then maybe they point something out which is like they feel like is not right in the organization and that sort of thing and then immediately they're framed as being a bit controversial mm-hmm. and it this this kind of uh, deteriorates until eventually they leave the organization now I'll try and put this up on our website so you can see this because I'm not sure I described that particularly well mm. but it seemed that a lot of people were identifying with that now mm. we've talked about how mm. um, white colleagues can become allies but broadly across organizational culture what else needs to be changing to make sure that employees of color feel like they are being supported and being included and they're not just that token person at the table I completely agree and I think we lots of us shared that graphic because it resonated so much with a lot of our personal experiences particularly as when you talk about this it's important also think about intersectionality obviously there's far more gender equality in the third sector at least in sort of more entry level and middle roles than there is in leadership roles but if you're a young woman of colour entering and maybe you're the only person in a workplace in a social impact organisation whether it's a charity or a social enterprise and you go and you see and people have 
chosen you because they think you're interesting, they think you're smart, and they think you have a new perspective. Actually, when it comes to sharing that perspective and when it comes to challenging those core, often sort of core strategies and core tenets. I remember personally, I went for a job uh, a couple of years ago and uh, it was with an educational charity. And I said, it's really interesting that you're targeting your product at schools with lots of young women of colour and you're designed to mentor these young people. But it's really interesting to me that actually not a single, apart from one cartoon of a girl in a hijab, you don't have any testimony from any students of colour or any teachers of colour or any sort of understanding about race and how it plays in with your entire strategy in in your organization and they sort of said you don't have enough experience the role and I was like "Mm." (laughs) Um, (laughs) okay sure I think it's more broad than that I I think we have a very sort of funder or member or stakeholder driven culture whereby Mm. actually organizations care more about sort of understandably who provides key resources than necessarily their staff members are necessarily making this corporate change. And that's a big question for funders to ask themselves around what role they have to play in driving this culture in organisations that doesn't put users first, that manifests these experiences for people of colour because it means that you have to work in a certain way and you have to prioritise certain things. I think also one of the things to add to that diagram and that experience for people of colour is the change in the sector is so slow, but most of the change happening at organisational level for example, is usually the unpaid labour of people of colour mm-hmm. who are pointing out these things, being told there's nothing wrong, fighting back against it, and that's at the expense of their own careers. Mm. It's usually they are not compensated for doing a lot of that work and it's out of you know working hours that they're doing it because they care and they want to bring about this change. So I think there's a big question to ask about like who is doing all of this work trying to bring about this change. And I think it shouldn't be a choice for a person of colour in the sector to pick between sort of career progression and speaking out and making this change because often it can be presented to you as that well if you cause trouble and you say there are these structural problems then actually you will be marked out as a troublemaker and therefore you'll find your own opportunities within your workplace restricted and this is stopping change in such a big level yeah and I know there were a lot of people who weren't able to share their experiences online mm. in like a campaign that had like that kind of profile because they know that there were going to be repercussions for their jobs and for their careers and for when they went back to work the next day talking to colleagues. So we we kind of have asked leadership to reflect uh, in uh, leadership teams across the sector to reflect on a lot of things. And one of those is around uh, how their organisations serve their staff of colour. Uh, you know, do they think that people of colour at their organisations would have been able to talk about their experiences of racism? How did they invest in and support their staff of colour? Leadership needs to start asking themselves some of these hard questions and reflecting on them. And you have put out, obviously, a call to action for charity leaders, um, which you can read on the Charity So White Twitter page. It's a Medium post and it's very interesting. It's very insightful. Um, And in your call to action, you, you talk about defining clear and executable goals for the sector to start tackling this. Do you have any further thoughts on what these goals might be and how charities might be able to start benchmarking them? I think we're doing lots of work at the moment. I think Fatima has some dates for us, but we're running a series of workshops where we've actually done an open call for people of colour in the sector to come along and talk to us about what we want to see because actually what we found with uh, talking to people and actually the resource question and actually a sort of rebuttal that comes up to us a lot is there isn't the research, so we don't know what these goals should be and we don't know what the benchmarks should be. Let's spend another six months having a research project. Mm -hmm. And actually what we want to do is we want to do the work that we think has been missing so far in the sector, which is actually speak to people and then take 
a group of goals and benchmarks that are actually meaningful to the people who will interact with them. And I think that's a process that hasn't been done and that actually yeah, is work centers, that... the voices of yeah, people of colour and done. their experiences and what they think needs to be done next. So I think between us as an organising team, we definitely have lots of thoughts and ideas, yeah. but um, we're very aware that we also bring a very mm. specific set of perspectives that aren't representative of people of colour yeah. across the sector. So we're doing these workshops. We want people to kind of reach out and interact with us online and, you know, we'll go for a coffee with you. Um, so finding different ways to kind of get that input. And I think it will generate actions for leadership, for organisations, for funders, for sector bodies. Like that's one of the things I know is that it's it's not going to be about, you know, this one person has to do this one thing. It is going to be about there's different things that people people and organisations across the sector have to do individually and, and to come together to tackle issues. And hopefully there will, no, there definitely <laughs> will be um, mechanisms for accountability built into that around what that, how we, how we, yeah, put forward accountability for action and progress against those. How hopeful are you that this movement will drive change? And you know, do you think people in the sector are ready to listen? We thought a lot about this, and actually, one of there are sort of two main points here. One is that we're part of a long historical context. Of this, there have been lots of people making trying to make the change before us, and there are doubtless lots of people around the country and around the world trying to make this change now. And there will be people who come after us, right? But actually, more than that. So my day job is in politics, and. I see the political context of where we are now. Fatima mentioned austerity before, but um, I'm sure you've all seen the Operation Yellow Hammer stuff come yeah. out. Mm. And actually, it's people on low incomes will be most effective if we have a no deal Brexit. And we've seen an increase in racism and race hate. And actually, when you say people on low incomes, when you talk about the rise of populism in this country, actually, what you're talking about is people of colour being affected more than any other group. And so I don't think it's necessarily a question of hope, it's a question that there is a need because in the next six months, a year, five years, actually we'll see it being imperative for third sector organisations to support people on low incomes and people of colour. And actually if we don't do the work now, then it provides really negative outcomes for service users. We're talking about, you know, people going hungry, people being the victims of race hate, people not being able to support themselves. And that's what we're here to sort out. I think also that with this wider context of what's happening, we want to see the charity sector taking a lead in wider society on how we tackle and root out racism like we should be the ones leading it but at the moment that is not what's happening and we have a lot of stuff to sort out <laughs> within the sector so we can get to a point where we're doing that more broadly and, and showing people where we could be going and how to do this work you guys are doing this voluntarily on top of your day jobs you know it's this whole yeah an amount of work and amount of labor that you guys are being required to put in and i was just wondering are you seeking any funding for this or are you thinking about that yeah at the moment no um <laughs> yeah. we're, we're we're calling out the funding sector um i think it's a really complicated question mm. in terms mm. of thinking about if we were to get funding mm. what that would mean for what we're ties in with but um we're very aware of this fact that we're doing a lot of unpaid <laughs> labor at the moment and so thinking about what are the other ways that we can compensate ourselves mm. for that time can we you know access training that's paid and, and, and like been given that for free and things like that like other other ways that um, yeah that can help support us i think the thing about more in kind support and things like training and the opportunity to actually go and speak at things and speak to people is that we get to platform the campaign and we also get to acquire the skills to drive this forward and actually i think there is a question about funders and who's it for and at the moment i think we want to have the independence of voice that 
this allows us to have. Um, So where can we find out more about you guys and the movement? Yeah, so predominantly on Twitter at the moment. um, So you can follow us at Charity So White. The organising team is going to be going to do, like kind of speak and kind of chat to people at a bunch of things over the next few weeks. So you can check us out on the Progressive Britain podcast that's coming out on the 16th of September. We're going to be at the Civil Society Conference for People and Culture on the 19th of September and we'll be at MPC Ignites on the 10th of October. But the biggest thing is we, we really want people of colour to come and contribute to what's next. Um, so we're going to be running workshops on the 7th and the 13th of October. If you follow us on Twitter, you'll be able to kind of find a link to sign up. But if you can't come along, you can also like email us. There's lots of other ways to kind of contribute. We're very responsive. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you both so much. Thank you. The latest accounts for the reproductive health charity Marie Stopes, published last month, revealed that the highest earner at the charity, understood to be the chief executive Simon Cook, received a basic salary of £217,250 and a performance-related bonus of the same amount, effectively doubling his salary. In the same year, the charity spent £409,000 on redundancies. A statement from this charity said the bonus payment was because the charity had had its highest annual impact to date. After Third Sector reported the story, it hit the national papers and the Charity Commission weighed in to ask the charity to explain itself. Mark Flanagan, former chief executive of Beating Bowel Cancer, who now works for the NHS, wrote an opinion piece for Third Sector branding the bonus obscene. I spoke to him over the phone to find out more about his thoughts on the issue. Mark, thank you very much for agreeing to chat to me. So in the piece you wrote for us about the bonus awarded to the Mary Stokes Chief Executive uh, last month, you said that the level of bonus awarded was obscene. What made you say that? I've always had a problem with with charitable organisations which particularly have an international development bent that pay extraordinary large salaries. But I don't want to get into the salary debate because I think, you know, we could spend and go around in circles. But then when you see somebody with an ext- what I think is an extraordinary large salary, deserved or not deserved, we can debate till the cows come home, then actually getting a bonus equivalent to their salary, I think that's beyond the pale. Mm. I think there's a moral question there. I think it doesn't do the charity sector any good. I think any grassroots charity person, you know, working at admin fundraising level will go, oh, for God's sake. And I don't buy that that's the only way you can capture and keep these individuals because I think we all know there are very talented individuals right across our sector who aren't getting paid that type of money but who are wedded in their blood to the principles and values of what we do. As you've sort of said here, that there are kind of two issues, the, the issue of bonuses and the issue of, of pay. Would you argue that people in the charity sector should never get bonuses? Uh, I would argue I think they should be rare, very rare. I would argue they shouldn't be at the level we see here. And as I said in my original article, um, if your chief exec's paid a bonus, you'll better be sure that the most junior member of staff who also contributes to the goals of the organisation should get a bonus of the same scale as mm. well. You know, uh, it's, the, it's the person sweeping the runway at Kennedy Airport that all the management trainers come out as we're all you know, aiming to get a man on the moon. You know, you can't argue the chief exec is the only one worthy of a bonus. I think, you, you know, what about the fundraisers? What about those delivering the projects on the ground? I also think the charity sector is different to the corporate sector. I think the charity sector is becoming too corporate in some areas. Mm. There's a difference between being business-like and smart versus being like a large corporate conglomerate, which actually lives by its own rules. 
And I think if you're seen to live by your own rules or live by rules that actually many charities rightly condemn, then we're opening up a whole raft of problems for ourselves. We're opening up a charges of hypocrisy. We're opening up a lack of ability to campaign on those issues. Throw that into the mix where effectively what you're dealing with here is a development charity. A charity is working in uh, you know, poverty-stricken areas of the world, developing nations of the world, world where they're an absolute king's ransom, then you, you would definitely ask them to come back and say, this just looks wrong. If it looks wrong, it probably is. And I mean, it's interesting um, you kind of bring up particularly chief exec bonuses, because I think there are sort of, in some organisations, fundraisers perhaps, you know, who are the ones bringing in the money, might get paid sort of more if they have a more successful year or that kind of thing. I think there are organisations like that. But would you argue that it's fundamentally different for a chief exec, or do you think it's, it's kind of the same? The whole I think way? it is. It's, it's payment, well, you know, it's payment by results for a fundraiser, and fundraising is one of the toughest jobs in the sector. You're the only one in the sector with a target on your back here. Mm. Um, fundraising is a tough gig. It, it, you know, there's particular type of people who've got particular skills and they, you know, and uh, if you, you live or die by your last success or whatever. What we mustn't forget in Mary Stopes, the case was that the year in which this bonus was, was paid, equivalent to the salary, the, the, a year's salary, just this year alone, they raised, only raised an additional 700000 in income. Mm. So you kind of go, hang on a minute. Um, so I think payment by results is possible when you're dealing with very clear metrics, KPIs that fundraisers set by. Yeah. I think when you start talking about impact, which is what Mary Stokes talked about, well, who measures that impact? What is that impact? Where's the transparency on it? And I would still go right back down to, you know, as a chief exec, I'd be perfectly satisfied to be paid my salary, do a good job, and that's the reward for being a chief exec, not to be handed out extra bonuses. You know, I wouldn't take a £10,000 bonus, never mind a £231,000. We must remember that. That takes his salary to heading towards half a million. Yeah. That's just, you know, astonishing. For, you know, that's just mega and crazy. And again, I don't buy. That's the only guaranteed way of having someone lead the organization to brilliant success. I just don't get that. Not when you look across the field. There are brilliant people out there in our sector, brilliant individuals who aren't raking it in anyway, but also not being paid the bonuses, but they work incredibly hard. We've got some great leaders, you know, people like Julie Bentley out there, and, you know, mm -hmm. you know, and the, the chief exec of uh, Cancer Research UK, Michelle, is finding a cure for cancer. Yeah. You know, she finds a cure for cancer. She's worth every penny she's paid. <laughs> but actually, yeah. when you're, you know, you're delivering a service that everyone has a part in delivering, I think you've got to take a long, long, hard look at that. I think it's wrong. I don't even think you need to take a look at that. I think it's very clear, a black and white issue for me. That bonus was wrong. Now, particularly in a year where there were £409,000 of redundancy payments Precisely. made as well. Um, so you come back and your donors say, well, where did that money go? Well, actually, we gave most a chunk of it to the chief exec, and then we paid the rest on redundancy. So you didn't increase your income by much. And that increase in income wasn't used to deliver more services. And you'll come back and say, oh, well, this is about efficiencies in the future or whatever. But I come right back down to and ask in the article, who else was paid mm. a year's salary for the contribution? It's elitist. It's out of order. It's not what the charity sector should be about. Chief execs get their rewards in many other ways. They get platforms. They get recognition. You know, they get gongs and OBEs and knighthoods nowadays, you know, and, you know, 99% of them are very well deserved and applaud them. But you know what? It's being a chief exec of any charity is special. It's an honor. You, you, are, you should be paid what you're worth, but you shouldn't be taken.
taking the mickey and taking an equivalent salary of bonus. It's the bonus I really have a problem with. But a lot of the coverage of this issue from the kind of the mainstream media did focus on the salary issue rather than it being the mm. bonus issue. And I mean, it's certainly something from a third sector point of view. Anytime there is a scandal in the charity sector, we can obviously see how many people are reading different stories. And whenever there's any sort of scandal, and it doesn't matter if it's to do with pay or not, the charity pay survey, executive pay, um, salary survey, is always in the top 10 most read stories because people are yep. suddenly very interested in, in, in pay, even when it's something to do with, you know, when it was a safeguarding scandal or, or President's Club or anything like that. Does the sector need to be having more of a conversation both with itself and with the outside world about pay? I think the sector needs to have a conversation with itself about things like large bonuses like this. But I think at the outside world, we need to say to the outside world, we're not doing this for nothing. You know, again, Chief Executive Marie Curie is looking for a cure for cancer. You know, I was paid to be in bowel cancer to kind of, you know, run a service and, and support people living with bowel cancer. They're tough jobs, um, and you have to have a proportionate pay depending on your income and the skills that you want. I think there will be some occasions when you can point to that, but I, I don't buy the public's view that you shouldn't be paid more than the Prime Minister or whatever. I think it does depend on the job, and they are very tough jobs. Mm. And you're 24-7, and you know you have, you know, you you are a captain of industry, if I can put it that way, in your own sector in many ways, particularly some of the larger charities, some of the major ones that really make this massive impact. So I think there is something around it. I'm a PR man by background, it's in my bones, that we've got to get out there and, and just defend our position and say, well, Actually, the reasons why Cancer Research UK and Macmillan are very large charities is because we pay people to make them large and to grow and to develop more. If you run it from a, a shoe, you know, from the back of a from a shoebox or from the back of your living room, you know, or your kitchen table, you're not going to be a national or international charity. But that does mean there are there should still be boundaries and limits on things like bonuses. I think there are some charities out there, to be blunt, which actually aren't really, I think, in my view, charities which are paying salaries of, you know, gazillions of hundreds of thousands, way above what some of the others are. Hmm. Uh, and you've got to also look at that and say, well, these are service charities, they're care charities very often. They have charitable status, but are they charities? There's a whole debate as well. There's a whole thing about, you know, having a charitable status, does that, you know, what is the essence of a charity? I think that there's two different things there. Um, so I think we need to, you know, we need to be prepared to defend ourselves may be the wrong word because I don't like defensiveness. Um, I think we need to also be honest with ourselves as well. Mm. There are many flaws and problems. Uh, we had those with fundraising and uh, issues around safeguarding. The instinct of our sector too often is to defend itself and say, oh, that's not fair. Well, tough, that's the way the world is. <laughs> um, the, you know, the scrutiny that we are under now is the scrutiny that we often put others under. And that's just the, world, the way the world has to be. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Emily, do you think you could escape from the Tower of London? Funnily enough, Rebecca, I know for a fact that I couldn't because... So, uh, Historic Royal Palaces, the charity that manages the Tower and five other sites, challenged people to see if they could do just that using Twitter. Last month, the charity's Twitter account published a choose-your-own-adventure-style thread where users could click on different tweets to make choices and attempt to flee one of the most notorious prisons in British history. 
We're joined by Oliver Frost, Digital Media Officer at Historic Royal Palaces, who can explain a little bit more about the project. Hi, thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you for joining I'd us. I'd like to say that I tried to do this many, many times, <laughs> and it actually took me probably about an hour one Friday when I definitely should have been working. <laughs> we should totally admit this on a podcast. I know. Tell my editor I'm sorry. Um, but I, I could not get, I couldn't escape the tower. I, I, I just kept getting caught again and again. It's a surprisingly complicated journey. It is journey. possible. There is a way out. There is a way out. Yep. Oh, God. Yeah. So, <laughs> Ali, can you tell us a little bit more about the campaign? Yeah, so actually this Twitter thread was part of a much wider social media campaign that we're running. So this was all part of our campaign to promote Tower Escape, which was the the kind of main summer offer at the Tower of London. So that was made up of two main on-site activities. The first being a live reenactment of John Gerard, the 16th century Jesuit priest, who in 1597 really did escape from the Tower of London using exactly the methods described in the Twitter thread. And that was reenacted on site with historical interpreters and quite a lot of safety equipment um, abseiling <laughs> out of the salt tower at the tower. And then also there was a sort of family, an interactive family trail where groups could pick up a map, follow clues. There would be um, historical interpreters in costume uh, to sort of guide their way. And they would see if they could then escape the tower uh, as a group and then would either be presented with a congratulations, you succeeded or sorry, better luck next time. You didn't manage it. So really, our social media campaign was all around trying to communicate those on-site activities and find a way to translate that. Uh, in an effective way on social. And what inspired the Twitter thread itself, apart from obviously John Gerard's journey? Mm. Where did you get the idea to do this very complex Twitter feed? Yeah, so that specific format with the linked tweets was very much inspired by one particular piece of content. It's a Beyonce. You're Beyonce's assistant, right? I I couldn't... I'm really into this medium. I I didn't manage as Beyonce's assistant either. I got fired. I got caught mm-hmm. from the Tower of London. It's uh, yeah. I think I'm I'm too much of a people pleaser. So this was uh, a similar campaign. Similar it was campaign. can you be yeah. Beyonce's assistant without getting caught, uh, without getting uh, fired? Not yeah, fired. and you have to yeah. you, you click on the tweets and it mm-hmm. takes you to different outcomes basically. Yeah, yes. yeah. So I don't know if so it was Green China who made that can you be Beyonce's assistant for a day multi-thread experience. I don't know if. They invented it necessarily. I believe that there were some before, but it was certainly late June, early July when that first went up and went viral, that that really exploded. Green China has since done other threads on different themes using the same format and other people have tried to get on board as well. So it was just, it was a trend that we were noticing and we thought, what with the John Gerard thing coming up, we knew that we had to kind of create a promotional campaign around this. We saw an opportunity to bring history and Twitter together in this way. And like, how complicated was it to actually do? Because it does look incredibly fiddly to sort of reverse engineer yeah, it. Yeah, it did take a while. So the first thing to do was to, John Gerard gifted us with his autobiography. So we have this real life account of exactly what it was like when he was in the tower and how he escaped. So we know all that. We know all the history and all the details. So it was a way of first coming up with a way to present that story in a way that was a series of options, like a series of questions that was true to history. Uh, and then taking that kind of main trunk of that tree and then coming up with loads of branches either side of dead ends and other options and bits that would loop you back round. We knew that if we were going to do it, we needed to do it properly. So it needed to be immersive. There needed to be lots of it. It was sort of thing that we probably could have half-assed a little bit and come <laughs> up with half, mm. as, you know, half as many options, but it wasn't going to cut it. So it did take a long time to come up just to sort of write a lot of sort of head scratching and coming up with all the different ideas of what things that could work but don't and why don't they work. And then once we had all of that mapped out, yeah, as you say, it it was a bit of a job then. So we have a sort of test Twitter account that's private that I spent then quite a lot of time on just typing things up, posting them, posting them in different orders, seeing what worked. 
and then sort of timing myself to see how quickly I could post. So it was 102 tweets in total wow. by the wow. end okay. and sort of having it all up in a Word document on one side of my desktop and up on Twitter on the other side and seeing how quickly I could <laughs> tweet it all out because I knew that for as long as the, the whole thread was there incomplete, yeah. people are going to be confused. Mm. So it was then timing myself, getting it down. I think I did it in 27 minutes on the morning that it went out. Nice. Posted the whole wow. thing. It took a while. <laughs> and what were you kind of hoping the, the impact and the response would be? The first thing is obviously that we wanted to raise awareness of the on-site offer at the Tower. So that was mm. the kind of reason for doing it in the first place. That is always something that is at the forefront of our minds when we're creating this kind of stuff is that, you know, we're reminding people that the Tower of London is there, that we're running these sorts of events, that we want people to come and visit. But with all of these kinds of things, we also want this content to stand on its own as an engaging and interesting and informative piece of content that people can engage with on their own terms. And obviously we we understand that a lot of our followers are based in the US or in Asia, abroad, realistically aren't going to be coming to the Tower to to see John Gerard escape. And we want this to not just run like an ad, that it is actually a, a, a piece of content and a piece of entertainment and information on its own legs. You do learn so much. I mean, that's yeah. that's the thing, like I, mm. without wanting to spoil too much. And I didn't even know that this was based on a real escape when I was playing it. I just thought it was like a bit of lighthearted fun on a Friday. But um, you do have to be very inventive with your orange peel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like, which is not which is not what I thought would be like a 15th century tactic for like busting out of somewhere. But yeah, you know, orange peel, who knew? And that's sort of something that came quite late in the process, actually, was was thinking that we could create this and then at the end the kind of punchline could be oh and by the way you've just escaped the tower because you followed in it the footsteps so of cool. someone who did exactly that I was just, exactly I was just like what <laughs> <laughs> this is a stupid idea give me rope where is I the know. rope why I am I dead yeah. I was like oh it's great but it's not very realistic is it <laughs> and at the end I was like oh someone actually got out that way yeah because wow. it does seem pretty far fetched <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah and has the response like I mean I've, I was blown away by it but has, has everyone else been equally taken yeah the response was really positive we've been absolutely chuffed with how it's gone down so we're now sort of in the process of pulling together a, a pretty detailed report um, just internally about the outcomes of the campaign and how it tied in with with the other pieces of content that we put together for Tower Escape as well. But it has been really, really wonderful seeing the sort of responses we've got and people sort of share retweeting it and commenting with their own things. And it's been wonderful to see that how many people have said that, you know, they, as you said, that they spent, oh, I've just spent 25 minutes doing this, that I think a lot of the time people do scroll through Twitter and may half read what mm. they're actually scrolling past and not really engaging. And it was really nice to be able to put something out there that people actually had to bring something of themselves to and, and did really engage with and put in a lot of time. And actually, I think a lot of people have said that they came out feeling that they just spent 15 minutes on Twitter doing something worthwhile, which probably doesn't happen as often as it should. Yeah, I definitely did see a tweet that was like, this is the best use of Twitter ever. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, we can't take credit for inventing that format, um, of course, but it, it's been wonderful to to take that format and to apply it to to history and to teaching history and making history exciting and informative that coming together of something 400 years old and something two months old has been great. Brilliant. And are you planning to do anything more similar in the future, do you think? Yes, insofar as we are really enjoying and seeing the benefits of working up interactive content across Mm -hmm. platforms in all kinds of ways. I think we're seeing that as a really interesting way forward because our audiences are very engaged and they do enjoy a back and forth with us rather than constantly just being given information to consume and move on. Whether or not we'll be repeating that exact format anytime soon, we'll see. I guess maybe if something comes up in the future that really lends itself to that structure, then we would definitely look at it. I think it's tempting when you've had a success with a certain kind of thing to turn something else around and and repeat that formula. My suspicion would be that because I think part of 
the reason why we got such a good response was because it did seem quite fresh and quite innovative and it seemed like something new that a lot of people hadn't seen before. If we turned around the same thing again next week, that novelty would be lost and we I think we would see diminishing returns pretty quickly. So it's really sort of storing that, holding it. And if there is a story that we want to tell six months, a year down the line that really suits itself to that format and then we could bring it out again. And do you have any advice for other charities that you would, for other charities wanting to use social media in this kind of creative and innovative way? The main thing I'd say from just from takeaways from from this for us uh, and the team that I'm in is planning ahead has just been so beneficial for us. It, it, it's trying to get that balance of keeping one eye on what's trending now and making sure that your social media channels can be reactive and you're ready to jump on something as it comes up. But there also you've got your eyes three months down the road and you're looking at what's coming up in terms of what the organisation is looking at doing. And certainly this wouldn't have come together and we wouldn't have had the time to really think about it and to structure it carefully if we hadn't been looking at it two or three months ahead. And I think we could have easily found ourselves in a situation where two weeks out we'd had this great idea, but there wasn't the time to implement it. And it was only because we luckily sort of had that brainwave far enough in advance that I had the time to just actually sit with my headphones on and write all this stuff out. And that, I think, is ultimately what made it as successful as it was. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks Thanks a lot. Do you know the weirdest thing about that Tower of London thing? It was definitely that prisoners in jail were getting oranges. Like, I definitely yeah. thought they were a delicacy Yeah, or back like, in the 1500s. I, don't. I don't know. Like my, my history of European fruit is, is not great, but I just remember I was always like, oh, oranges, you know, because they give you the choice if you want oranges or apples. And I was like, oranges because scurvy. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was, that's what I knew. You were playing and the very long game. I was you intended to survive the tower. <laughs> I'll get my head chopped off, but I won't die of scurvy. Um, <laughs> all right, well... We will be back with another episode next month, so make sure you subscribe to this, The Third Sector Podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Thank you again to Fatima Iftikhar, Henna Shah, Mark Flanagan and Ollie Frost for joining us, to the producer Anushka Tate for Rethink Audio and to you for listening.